I've uh, been privileged to be here several times and several summer series in recent years, and uh, thankful once again for the opportunity to be here this year. Let's see if I can get this to work so it does what I want it to do. There we go. Everybody see that? Good deal. I see it there, but always have to look back. Our lesson is going to focus on the, the expression, the Son of Man, that appears throughout the Bible, uh, but especially as it appears in the New Testament, and even more especially as it appears in the Gospel of Matthew. As we go into our lesson, you're going to see uh, a couple of slides that reflect very quickly some of the names, titles, and designations that are used uh, with reference to Jesus' identity, with reference to his work, with reference to why he came and what he does. There are hundreds of them, literally, in the Old Testament and the New Testament. We are, I suppose, most comfortable and most familiar uh, with the expression Jesus, or Jesus Christ, or the Lord Jesus Christ. But I'll say this at the outset, and it will be repeated a couple of times in the course of the lesson, that Jesus most frequently referred to himself not by his given name as Jesus, but by the expression, by the title, if you will, by the words, Son of Man. And there's a reason why he did so. The passage that's on the screen in Matthew chapter 8, verse 20, is the first of multiple times that appears in the New Testament, most frequently in Matthew's Gospel. And we're going to look at that context in just a moment and then set the stage in an outline form of what we're going to do beyond that passage. But I want to read that passage to you. Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. That's Matthew chapter 8, verse 20. So I want to start by looking at that particular passage in some detail so that we can understand what it is that Jesus was addressing. So let's look at that context in Matthew chapter 8 and verse 20. But I want us to note that Jesus' work is summed up in the text of Matthew chapter 4, immediately before the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, by three words, by teaching, preaching, and healing. He taught publicly, he was preaching in the synagogue, and he was healing constantly as he traveled. That's brought out first in Matthew chapter 4, verse 23. Then again in Matthew chapter 9, verse 35, as he's about to send the apostles out on what we know to be the limited commission. And then after he sent them out on the limited commission, we see that phrase, or part of it, used anyway again, as Jesus resumed what he was doing before, concurrently preaching and teaching as the disciples went on on that limited commission, Matthew chapter 11, verse 1. So as we look at this, we see that in Matthew chapter 5, chapter 6, and chapter 7, uh, those chapters that we refer to as the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said in verse 2 at the beginning of that chapter, he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, and the rest of chapter 5, chapter 6, and chapter 7, again, the Sermon on the Mount, was Jesus' teaching, the first teachings about what it meant to be a disciple and the Beatitudes and the things that they had to go through and the things that they would suffer going forward. But as we continue in the text, we see immediately after that, in Matthew chapter 8, the passage where we will first find the expression, Son of Man, in verse 20 in just a moment, that it's primarily a chapter of Jesus' healing 
And so the three-part summation of teaching, preaching, and healing is carried out very quickly in the next few chapters. All of teaching, five, six, and seven, and all, nothing but healing in chapter eight. He healed a leper. He healed the centurion's servant and Peter's mother-in-law. He cleansed those who were demon-possessed. And in uh, chapter 8, verse 16 and 17, the text tells us that he healed all who were sick. This is but one of many instances where it simply in a blanket fashion talks about how far-reaching Jesus was in his ministry, especially his healing ministry in this context. But then we see something about discipleship that's brought out in this passage. And the discipleship is brought out in a very unique expression that we're going to see in verse 20. But before that, in verse 19, Jesus is told by a man who came to him, says, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Well, that's a pretty bold claim, pretty bold statement. And if the man was prepared to do exactly what he said he was going to do, uh, he would be an incredible disciple of faith. But what we see in verse 20, the first time we see the expression son of man, is what Jesus said about cost to himself. And by virtue of talking about the cost to himself, implicit within that, as we go a little bit further, was the cost to anybody who would follow Jesus as a disciple. Jesus said, the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. He said in that context that Birds of the air have nests, and foxes have a place to lay their head. But that's not me. I don't have a place to lay my head. And if you look throughout the rest of the Gospels, you will see that Jesus lived with Peter and Andrew in their house, not in his own house, and that he subsisted from the standpoint of economics on the largesse and the donations and the contributions of those who were his disciples, many including the women who shared their wealth from their own household. And so Jesus gave up everything, even so much as having his own place to live that would be identified as his own. He says, I really don't have a place. Are you willing to follow me? So this man said he wanted to follow him, and Jesus said, follow me, and let the dead bury the dead. In between those two statements, the man said, well, I will follow you. I'm hesitating, as I would imagine the man might have done so. Uh, but my parents aren't dead. My family's not dead. When, when that happens, when that takes place, I'll be glad to follow you. And Jesus was saying the cost to follow me is going to be great. And the immediacy and the need to follow me must be now, not when it's convenient to you. This is the first of many such expressions in Scripture in the New Testament where Jesus used that expression, Son of Man. And I want to explore that a little bit more detail because the first time it was used, it not only talked about what Jesus was willing to give up, intimate in the, in, intimated in that context was what we too must be willing to give up, following his example as the Son of Man. So here's an outline of where we're going in just a moment, once we look at this context. There's a, a very tight connection. There's an intrinsic connection that exists between Jesus and mankind that's expressed in the words, the Son of Man. The Bible teaches us that Jesus is definitely fully divine. But the Bible also teaches us that Jesus is fully human. And in the repetition of the expression, Son of Man, Jesus was accentuating 
his appearance and his function as the Son of Man, not to the exclusion of being the Son of God, but there's a reason why he brought this term out, this expression out, as the most popular one, the most frequently used one, that he used with reference to himself. It is, as we mentioned already, his chosen designation for himself. He knew he was Jesus. He knew he was the Messiah. He knew that he was the Lord. He knew that he was the Lord Jesus Christ. But more often than not, when he referred to himself, this is the expression that he used. It reflects the humanity of Jesus in a way that should prompt us to follow his example. Not that we have to use the same expression that he did, but that we would learn to live, that we would learn to love, and that we would learn to serve as sacrificially as did Jesus by means of the use of that particular term. We follow him. We honor and glorify him. We do so not only for his honor and his glory, but we do so for the benefit of others and to make ourselves right in God's sight. Now, when I say make ourselves right, it's not like we do so, like we're earning anything, but because we are submitting to Jesus and we learn to live like him, think like him, act like him, speak like him, uh, we become right in his sight because of his grace and because of his mercy. So we do all this for his honor and for his glory and for the benefit of others. So let's go into the outline of our study that I alluded to just a moment ago. We're going to talk about the names and titles of Jesus broadly, very quickly. We're going to talk about the occurrences of the expression, the phrase, the Son of Man, as it appears in Scripture, in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Looking first at the Old Testament emphasis, and then obviously in the New Testament emphasis. And then we're going to look at Jesus' emphasis, why Jesus used that term almost exclusively with reference to himself, and what that means to us. Ultimately, we want to find out why Jesus used these expressions to refer to himself as a means of motivating us to be his disciples, something that we see very uh, upfront and personal in the very first time it's used in Matthew chapter 8 and verse 20. So let's begin to look at the names and the titles of Jesus. There are many. I've already alluded to the fact that there are hundreds of them scattered throughout Scripture, so we don't have time to look at all of them. But you'll see a very quick slide or two that lists some of them, and again, very quickly, and we're not going to take the time to look at all of them, that Jesus used, or Scripture uses a number of names, a number of titles, a number of descriptions and or designations about who Jesus was and what Jesus did. And so all of these different designations, names, and titles uh, were used in a very real way uh, to explain why Jesus came, to demonstrate that he was the Messiah. So I know you can't see that, other than the fact that's a list. But that list in two columns lists 100 different designations of Jesus used throughout Scripture. And they're listed alphabetically. Again, you can't see that, but trust me, they're there. I'll be glad to share this with you later, if uh, need be. In this next series, it's spread out over four pages, there are more than 150 titles that are listed, used with reference to who Jesus was and what Jesus did, as he referred to himself and as others referred to him, in the context of Scripture as a whole. So we've already touched on the fact that when Jesus referred to himself, more often than not, he used the designation, the Son of Man. That expression the Son of Man, sometimes capitalized depending on where you find it, 
and sometimes not, again, depending on where you find it, occurs 194 times in both the Old Testament and the New Testament in a common English translation. I base this on the New King James Version. It might vary a little bit from one translation to another. But just under 200 times this expression is used in the context of Scripture. And again, both Old Testament and New Testament. And this is how it's going to be used across uh, the text of the Old Testament and the New Testament. We see it appears once in the book of Numbers, twice in the book of Job, four times in the book of Isaiah, uh, Psalms, one time in the book of Isaiah, four times in Jeremiah, but look at Ezekiel, 93 times. 93 times in that Old Testament book, and in the book of Daniel, twice. Well, let's look at its appearances in the New Testament, and by the way, we don't have time to look at all of them. We will survey ever so briefly some of the references in the book of Ezekiel to see how it's used and do a better job at looking at some of the references that are brought out in the book of Matthew. But in the book of Matthew, 32 times, most frequently in that text. Book of Mark, 14 times. Luke, 25. John, 12 times. Only once in the book of Acts. Only once in the book of Hebrews. And only twice in the book of Revelation. Now there's a pattern that's been established there numerically, and you might not think it's very significant, uh, but we're going to emphasize as we go a little bit further that demonstrates that Jesus used the term with reference to himself in the Gospels. And then it wasn't used so much by his followers after the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. That more often than not, they referred to him as the Son of God, rather than the Son of Man. Or some other title that was equivalent in expressing the deity of Jesus. Well, why was that the case? There's some ideas, some thoughts about that that uh, might be interesting, but I don't know all of those details. But I simply know that the text of the New Testament shows that when Jesus used the words almost exclusively out of his own mouth, only once or twice out of the mouths of others, and then as they were reflecting what he had just said, that's the preferred designation, the preferred title, the preferred description that Jesus used with reference to himself. So let's go a little bit further. Let's look at not just uh, an overview and a number of, of uh, uh, listings, uh, but let's look at the Old Testament uh, emphasis. And you noticed already that 93 times the expression appears in the book of Ezekiel. And we don't have time to look at all of those. We're only going to look at a handful of those in the context of the book of Ezekiel. But I want you to see that the term that's used, son of man, is used by inspiration in Scripture by Ezekiel himself to refer to himself almost exclusively. And so in the opening chapters of the book of Ezekiel, you will see starting in chapter 2, verse 1, verse 3, verse 6, verse 8, and then continuing that God speaks to him, calling him the Son of Man, and that Ezekiel often reflects that same designation that God uses of himself, Ezekiel, as he's speaking to others. And so more often than not, of the 93 usages that we're going to see in the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel's not talking about Jesus. He's talking about himself. He's talking about Ezekiel, the prophet, who's ministering and is uh, reaching out to Old Testament nation of Israel. And so that's an interesting thing to note going forward. It's also important to note that though he was in human fleshly form, he, Ezekiel, still had a unique role to play in delivering God's message to Israel. The designation Son of Man 
as we see Jesus use it, there's a sense of dignity, there's a sense of elevation, there's a sense of inseparability from his deity. But in the context of the way Ezekiel uses the expression, it's anything but. It's a humbling term. It's a keep you in your place term, as Ezekiel uses that description by inspiration of himself. It's a very servant-oriented term. And that's exactly what all the prophets were. They were servants. And so the repetition of that 93 times in the context of the book of Ezekiel emphasizes the servanthood, not just of Ezekiel specifically, particularly, but of all of those who served as, as prophets in, uh, in God's enterprise at that particular time. So that's important to notice. Though nothing more than the Son of Man from the standpoint of being a servant, Ezekiel was frequently, frequently reminded of what his job entailed. He was told, for example, not to be afraid of his audience. Why? Because of the unique things that he was going to proclaim. He wasn't there as a popular speaker. He wasn't there as a build-them-up speaker. He was there of tearing-them-down kind of speaker and, and taking them to task uh, for their sins and their shortcomings. He was there as a corrective speaker. So the humility that he needed to express, uh, that needed to define him, was keeping himself in check as he delivered a very stinging message or series of messages uh, to the people who were listening to him. He was not to be afraid of what they said. He was not to be afraid of how they looked at him or the things that they might threaten to him. If you know anything about the prophets, you know some of the prophets didn't have the easiest of lives. If you read anything about Jeremiah, you know the things that he went through, that the messages that he wrote were torn up, that he was thrown into a pit, he was left there to die. Many of the prophets suffered stinging rebukes at the hands of the people that they were speaking to, to help them as God sent them, directing them to get Israel and Judah, depending on which part of the country that they were uh, prophets to at the given time. And so it was a very negative thing that he had to face. So it was a very humbling thing. He was to say only what God wanted him to say. That's the same thing with all of the prophets. Don't go beyond anything that I've said. Just deliver what I ask you to say and present it to these people in such a way that they will hear what you have to say and hopefully listen and change. So this is all an Old Testament emphasis, primarily focusing on what Ezekiel said because we see it more frequently in Ezekiel than anywhere else. Ezekiel was described as ingesting the Word of God. It was presented to him as a book that tasted good, that he was going to swallow, and initially the flavor was fine. But the responsibility that was laid upon him after ingesting this book with good flavor wasn't the best. There was a sense of sourness to it, something unpleasant to it, because the proclamation of God's word, which sounds to be good, was going to come across as anything but good to the people who were listening to it. So he was to make the delivery of God's message his life's work. This is what I want you to live for, Ezekiel. This is what I want you to do. I want you to proclaim my message to the people, even though the people don't really want to listen to it. So he's described very familiarly in the context as being a watchman as a person who is responsible to warn about impending dangers, 
saying the enemy's approaching, the enemy's approaching, and not just to say that in his own hearing, but to say that in the way uh, that the warnings that God wanted him delivered were delivered to his people. He was des designated as the means by which God's word was proclaimed to others. Uh, and even when they attempted to physically restrict him, again, we already talked about what happened to Jeremiah, this was part of what he was to do. This was his job description as a prophet. Let me simply say, from the standpoint of those who are preaching and teaching the gospel of Christ, especially in this country, uh, this uh, sort of attitude towards a preacher is foreign to us. People may not like what you have to say. They may disregard what you have to say. Uh, they may put you in your place vocally, but very rarely do people, uh, very rarely are preachers met with fisticuffs or other forms of violence in this country. People may think about it, but thankfully they don't do it. And so, uh, but th this was a reality. This was a reality that he was facing. Through, through it all, Ezekiel was to prophesy against, not just to, but against the nation of Israel. And he was to do so consistently without fail. So that's an overview in part of one of the most prominent usages of the expression, son of man, as it appears in the Old Testament. Well, let's get into what's going to be more germane to us, and that's how it's used in the New Testament. Jesus used that expression to focus on his selflessness. The very first passage we looked at, Matthew chapter 8, verse 20. The animals, they have a place to lay their head. The Son of Man does not. He uses it with reference to his ability to forgive in chapter 9, verse 2 and verse 6. He uses it with reference to his imminent return. The Son of Man is going to come back. He uses it with reference to his lordship in chapter 12 and verse 8. And these are very, very quick summations of how Jesus uses that designation only in Matthew. He uses it with reference to his impending resurrection. The Son of Man will one day live again. He uses it with reference to his connection to the spread of the gospel evangelism in Matthew chapter 13. In verse 37, Jesus uses that expression four verses later with reference to his role in judgment, and again in chapter 16. He uses it repeatedly as a means of self-identification. This is who I am. Jesus, the name of Nazareth, where he was from. But the role that he played, more frequently than not, was the Son of Man. We'll talk about the connections that are involved in that as we go further. He focused on his resurrection using the same term. Repeatedly, I don't think I caught all the passages where this was the case, about his impending betrayal and death. Before we get to some concluding remarks, I want you to notice this. His constant reference to man, 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 son of man, was to identify with the people that were listening to him, his audiences, in the multitudes, in the synagogues, in one-on-one -on -one conversations or small conversations in groups with the disciples and others, to let them know he knew what they were. He was where they were from the standpoint of his physicality. And he felt what they felt physically. He hungered and felt pain and endured suffering mentally and physically and emotionally, even though he was the Son of God. So his frequent reference to himself as the Son of Man was a means of identifying with the people that he related to. One of the things that's important for us in the context of ourselves being Christians is to connect with and relate to the people that we are teaching. 
If we come across in a high-handed, self-righteous way, people aren't willing to listen to us so readily. And so Jesus was identifying them in a way very close to who they were and where they were, not diminishing his deity, but showing even though I am the very Son of God, I relate to you. I know what you think. I know what you feel. I know what you're going through. And that's important as we see all of these usages brought out in the context of the New Testament. Jesus uses that expression to identify and to describe his role as Savior, to talk about his future glorification. That's an interesting thing. We've already touched on this very briefly, that most of the time after Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, only once in the book of Acts, once in the book of Hebrews, twice in the book of, of Revelation, he was more frequently referred to in terms that reflected his deity on the other side of his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. There's a reason why Jesus is emphasizing this now. He needs to connect with us. We need to connect with him. To understand that the Son of Man is also the Son of God. That we can be glorified as he was glorified on the other side of his life. There's hope for us in this term. It's not a message of doom and gloom saying you'll always be nothing more than man. You have the potential to be with me, to be where I am, to be like me, John says in the epistles, 1 John. So it emphasizes his role of Savior, of his future glorification, speaking about the sudden, imminent return that he would experience and his judgment that's going to come in the future. All this is reflective of the New Testament emphasis, looking only, only as uses in the context of Matthew's gospel. Well, let's look at it as it relates to Jesus' emphasis himself. All the names, titles, and descriptions used in Scripture regarding Jesus, the one most frequently used referring to himself was this designation. We've said that already at the outset and once or two times, once or twice after that. Why was that the case? It's the phrase used more frequently than any other except his actual name, Jesus, itself, to refer to Jesus in the Gospels. Why did he use that? It wasn't a nickname. It wasn't a pet name. It wasn't something that he adopted to be cute. Uh, it was something to connect and to reflect who he was and to connect uh, with the people that he was relating to. Within the Gospel, it's found only in sayings ascribed to Jesus. The only clear exceptions in John chapter 12, twice, Verse 34, where the people quote Jesus' phrase back at him and ask to whom he's referring. The point is, every time without fail, it comes from the mouth of Jesus, or people who heard Jesus just say it as they repeating it back to him, is this what you said? Yes. What does it mean? And so nobody else referred to Jesus that way. Jesus referred to himself that way, intentionally and repeatedly. Let's move a little bit further as we consider Jesus' emphasis of the terms, the Son of Man, that expression. The one he most frequently used again was the Son of Man. It connected and related him to the sovereignty of God, the Messiah. Even to introduce this passage is kind of scary because there's a lot to it. But there's an incredible apocalyptic-like vision in the book of Daniel, the seventh chapter, there are others in the book of Ezekiel. There are others in the book of Daniel. But Daniel has a vision, and in the context of the vision that he sees, he sees something, someone, 
who was likened to the Son of Man. And in that context, it's not just a term referring to a man in a humble state, as it's used repeatedly with reference to Ezekiel, as he's using it about himself some 93 times in the text. It's used to reflect deity as well as humanity. And that's the way it's used of Jesus in the context of the New Testament. That expression, the Son of Man, connected and related Jesus to the people of God. He was one of them. Feel their pain. He walked, he talked, he ate, slept, cried, wept, just like they did. And so though he was the Son of God, there should have been some appreciation, hopefully, of people seeing that what Jesus was going through made him very much a partaker of what they were going through. It doesn't take away from his deity, but it does accentuate his humanity. It uh, connected and related Jesus to God's mission, a mission, a mission to reach all, the Son of Man. The Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which is lost. Luke chapter 19 and verse 10. When Jesus used that expression, it reflected his heavenly origin. He came down from heaven. It reflected his authority, not just on earth, but even an authority that existed prior to coming to this world. He used it in some context to reflect his suffering and his betrayal. He used it in the context to refer to his resurrection, to his future return to his ultimate vindication on the other side of his death, burial, resurrection, and uh, ascension. He used it to reflect his association and his connection, as we often mention uh, before, uh, with reference to sinners, those people whom he identified with. He used it as a demonstration of his own selflessness, as a model, as an example for others to follow. That's part of what he was intending when he asked the man who said, I'll follow you anywhere. I'll be your disciple. And he said, I don't even have a place to lay my head. You sure you want to follow me? Are you sure you want to take up that mantle? Are you sure you want to do without? Are you sure you're willing to suffer physically for my name's sake? And so there's an example of selflessness, not only in himself, but as a model for others to follow. It's used as his role as a savior repeatedly, as judge, and ultimately with reference to his future exaltation to come on the other side of all of these things. As we draw to a close, all of these things, I hope, have some sense of dramatic impact on us. And I want us to think about what the expression Son of Man means to us. Okay, I've got it. In the context of the book of Ezekiel, it refers primarily to the humanity of Ezekiel and to his role as a servant to his role as a person willing to suffer in the context of being a messenger of the Lord in that context, but not the messenger, not the message as was Jesus. So Jesus' own designation as the Son of Man was never fully implemented, we've already mentioned this, by Christians after Pentecost. More often than not, they focused on the deity of Jesus as opposed to his humanity, because after all, he had accomplished everything that he came to accomplish. He not only came to preach and to teach and to heal, he came to die. He not only came to die, but he came to live again. He not only came to die and to live again, he came to die and to live again and to return to the Father and to sit at his right hand. And through all of that, he came to be the purchase price for his kingdom, the church. His blood was shed for all of that. 
So on the other side of all of those things, Christian, in order to honor and to exalt him, frequently referred to him with reference uh, to his deity and his exaltation more than they did referring to the fact that he was the Son of Man. But you cannot miss, as you read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the repeated emphasis on Jesus' own use of that term. And so we want to focus on that going a little bit further. Their emphasis, as we just said, was on his role and his title as the Son of God. In the very last book of the New Testament, that of course is the book of Revelation, that expression appears twice. Chapter 1, verse 13. Then again in chapter 14 and verse 14. That's interesting. In the heavenly visions that John saw, starting in the first chapter, and then carried out as you go throughout the rest of the 22 chapters of the book of Revelation, there's a sense in which even though Jesus was recognized and respected, honored and revered as the Son of God, deity, by those who are members of the body of Christ, there are these references to his humanity yet again. Why? Because by referring to Jesus as the Son of Man, even after he had been vindicated, even after he was victorious, even after he rose again, even after he had shed his blood for the purchase price of the church, he was reminding people who were going through hell on earth, so to speak, who are being persecuted for their faith in Jesus, the Messiah, the King, that I've been there. I've done that. And so can you. His deity is not in question in the book of Revelation. But these ever-so-subtle two-time references in the context of the book of Revelation remind people whose souls are depicted as being under the altar in the early chapters, crying out, how long is this going to go? I've been there. I've done that. I will be with you. Now and to the end, and into the future. There's a reason why that expression appears where it does in the context of the book of Revelation. Our victory today is not finalized. While we are prone to nothing wrong with this, to accentuate the deity of Jesus having accomplished everything that he did, finishing everything he came to do. He's referred to as the author and finisher of our faith. We must never forget what he went through in order to become just that. And that even in the end, we are reminded, I've been there, I've done that, and so can you. What's its purpose? Its purpose in the context of these last references, in the context of Revelation, is to give hope to those who were then suffering in the first century, post-Jesus' life, in the early years of the church, to give hope to those who were then suffering as Jesus suffered during the course of his life. He suffered. 
and he was glorified by means of his suffering. You will suffer, and you will be glorified. Take comfort in what Jesus went through. You can go through it as well. Let me simply say that there's no way we did justice to the 190-plus passages that are found in the Old and New Testament where Jesus is referred to as the Son of Man. I found it to be a very humbling experience to consider Jesus using that expression as a means of self-identification. We, and I'm using that term very broadly, we often refer to ourselves as being a blessed people, and we are, as being a hopeful people, and we are, as being a people who have a, a, a future hope of glory because of what Jesus did. But between the time that that's realized, we need to remember everything that Jesus went through while he was here in order to be glorified on the other end. I don't want to forget about Jesus' deity. But I don't want to forget about his humanity either and the things that he endured so that he would ultimately be glorified. It cost Jesus to do what he did and to be what he was. The first use of that expression in Matthew chapter 8, verse 20 is very poignant indeed. The man said, I'll follow you anywhere, in so many words. And Jesus, in effect, said, really? How far will you follow me? I don't even have my own bed to sleep in. Are you willing to give up even that most simple of creature comforts to be my disciple? And the man hemmed and hawed, so to speak, and said, well, I'll be ready to follow you, but, you know, my parents are still alive. I'm not ready yet. He wasn't willing to suffer. Before our future glory, we must be willing to suffer. There's a commitment in the context of our obedience to the gospel when we, through faith and repentance, are immersed into Christ for the mission of sins that we sign on to a life of suffering and sacrifice and deprivation to honor and glorify the Lord. As Jesus repeatedly did in the context of his life in which he by his own designation, referred to himself more often than not as the Son of Man. I am a child of God because of what he did. But I do not want to emphasize and glorify so much in my relationship to Jesus because of the price that he paid that I forget my responsibility to die to self daily. Not just in the context of baptism must we die to self, but every day. I find strength and comfort and solace in what Jesus taught as he referred to himself in that way, not emphasizing his full deity all of the time, though he did that repeatedly, but still emphasizing his identification with us. We sometimes rather flippantly refer to Jesus as our elder brother. I know what we mean when we say that. We are part of his family. We have been purchased by his blood. 
We are redeemed because we've become his. But I don't want us to become so chummy, so to speak, with Jesus, that we forget what he was willing to go through so that we might have treasures in heaven. Nothing you have today is worth keeping, cherishing, holding on to, if it keeps you away from God. If you're not a child of God, we've alluded to this a couple of times already, we'll do it one more time. Give up everything you have, mentally, physically if necessary, to be Christ's. Because that's what he did as the Son of Man, surrendering all to others for their sake and their glory. If you have not yet confessed your faith, if you have not yet made the decision to turn away from sin, to repent of your sins, to stop living a life of sin, and to bury yourself, so to speak, as you are buried with Christ in baptism, to rise to walk in newness of life. I hope you think about that this evening. And those of us who have already done so, let me encourage you to do a better job than I have in the last 30 or 40 minutes and read through the gospel accounts and notice more than just what we did in Matthew. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and the isolated instance in Acts and Hebrews and twice in the book of Revelation to glean for yourself the incredible message of what it meant for Jesus to say, I'm the Son of Man. Let's stand and sing, and those who might need to respond, do so as we